Hey, it's Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. At Go Be More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. So how does a clothing company help people chase their dreams? Well, I'm glad you asked. The clothes we wear are like every other part of our physical environment. They not only represent us, they reinforce who we are and who we're committed to being. When you wear a Go Be More shirt, you're wearing your personal commitment to Go Be More, to chase your dreams. And what better way to show someone you support them than to give them a physical symbol of your belief in them. We want the words Go Be More to remind you of your dreams every time you see them. As for this podcast, this is our chance to explore what it means to Go Be More with the people who inspire us and to share those stories and strategies with you. First, we have two announcements. Our new store just launched with all new gear, including athletic wear, zip hoodies, long sleeve shirts, new caps, and even a backpack. And because we're working with a new supplier, we're able to offer everything at much lower prices. So head over to gobymore.co and check it out. Next, for the holidays, John and I decided to pick a few of our early episodes and replay them. This conversation with Ben Auerbach has stuck with me for a few reasons. Ben spoke with us at a difficult time. His father had just passed away from coronavirus while incarcerated in federal prison, and it was my first exposure to both of those realities. Yet what really stands out is Ben's focus on controlling what's inside and giving back to his community. We'll be running these best of episodes for the next couple weeks and be back with some exciting announcements in the new year. Now, here's Ben. Ben, now we're back. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. What's up, brother? How you doing, man? What's going on, John? It's an honor to be here, and uh, thank you both uh, for the invite to the Go Be More podcast. I think this is going to be fun. Hey, take a deep breath, man. This is going to be a lo- it's going to be a fun ride, man. It's going to be a fun ride down memory lane it's for us. You know, you and I have known each other for a long time. We have had some really cool adventures, but Ben, for me, man, I'm telling you right now, this is so cool to be able to have an opportunity to do what Brian and I uh, are embarking on with with this podcast because. It's an opportunity for us to get to to better know uh, our friends, our peers, people that we admire, people that we don't know, but we've admired from afar. And I feel like in in so many ways, man, you're not just my friend, man. You're my brother. But I admire you, man. There's so much about your story that I can't wait to unpack. But, you know, Brian's the lead host here, so I I love to allow him to kind of lead and ask these questions. But I just want to say, first and foremost, thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us and to share your story with all of our listeners, I think they're they're in for a real treat. Thank you, brother. That means a lot, John, and it's uh, an honor to be here with you and Brian. So Ben, you and I have only met briefly, but I, I like to start off the podcast and kind of get a feel for your background, sort of who you are, where you grew up, you know, something about your, your family situation, just to get a feel sort of who is Ben Auerbach and where are your roots? So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, for sure. So family's definitely important to me. So thank you for asking about that. I have a pretty unique background. I'm biracial. My my dad's name is Lenny. He is grew up in Flushing, Queens in New York. So grew up in housing projects and kind of had a very interesting and wide life after that. But he is an Italian and Russian Jew who was a professor and an entrepreneur very intelligent man and pretty big personality. Uh, Definitely an extrovert, probably where I got a lot of my competitive edge, as well as my extroverted personality. My mom, uh, her name is Carol, and uh, she's almost the complete opposite. So uh, 
She grew up as an army brat, so they moved around a lot. She's a first-generation Filipina-American, and she primarily grew up in uh, Monterey, Carmel. That's uh, that area. She, she spent her middle school and high school uh, days in, in Monterey and then um, ended up going to Berkeley for college, which is where she met my dad, who was a nice. professor there. Um, so Ben, real quick, was she born in the Philippines or did she come, was, did, was she born here in the US? No, so both her parents uh, were born in the Philippines and then wow. her grandfather moved to America and started off as like a dishwasher and then worked his way into the US Army. Uh, so she was born in the United States, but they actually moved back to the Philippines while he was in the Army for a couple of years. And interestingly enough, gotcha. he lived in Hawaii for a while as well. So she moved around a little bit as a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. But she spoke Tagalog and uh, and English growing up. Did you did you learn Tagalog as a, as a kid? So my mom understands Tagalog, but uh, her dad is yeah. Visayan and her mom is from Cebu, so they actually spoke different dialects. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you can understand Tagalog, but it didn't get passed on to me. I learned Spanish growing up, but there's a Spanish influence with the Philippines. So uh, yes, yeah, that's true. I felt like Spanish yeah. kind of came naturally, whereas. French, which I studied for a year, uh, did not come very naturally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ended up studying Spanish all through college and uh, beyond. Okay, well, gotcha. So, okay, so your your dad is a what did you say? A Russian? What in Russian, Russian Jew? Italian a, Jew. Russian Italian wow. Jew from Queens, and your mom is a first generation Filipino American. So that's quite a combination. And you have brothers and sisters? Um, I have a twin brother. His name is Alex. John knows him well, yeah, and uh, we have. Very different personalities, but very similar interests. Uh, we both ran track together in college and, you know, connected with John in Hawaii when we first met. So, uh, yeah, my brother Alex is a big part of my life. So very different influences uh, from all those different individuals uh, growing up. My mom being very reserved, disciplined, kind of uh, a rule following, very sweet just to, uh, it wouldn't hurt a fly, but always by the book with her dad being in the army. Hmm. My dad, the complete opposite. Like, you know, there's always a way to bend the rules and smart enough okay. to <laughs> how to do it. And, you know, just very different energies, but uh, a good team. I really feel lucky growing up with both of them to have that balance. Do you feel... And, uh, you awesome. were, oh, go ahead, John. Yeah, sorry, uh, Brian, I just going to ask real quick because you described the different uh, influences of both your mom and your dad. And knowing you the way that I know you, I mean, I feel like you probably take a little bit more after your mom in, in some ways. But um, do, do you take on some of that bending the rules or, or kind of like being creative a little bit crafty like your dad? I mean, do you, is that oh, in yeah. your personality as well? Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a Jewish side. And as an entrepreneur, you got to kind of figure things out on the fly. So uh, hey, all right. I think over time, I was definitely a mama's boy growing up and uh, took more after my mom in certain respects with discipline and, you know, school and, and, you know, sports being very dedicated to that. But at the same time, the learning as I've gotten older and as an adult, how to adapt in, you know, dynamic environments is something that I, I certainly uh, took on from my dad and I'm Mm. grateful for his influence there for sure. Nice. And you grew up in California, right? Northern California? Yeah. So I was born in Berkeley, which is where we lived for the first six years of my life. And then we moved to a suburb, small town called Arinda, which is right over the the hill from Berkeley. And I spent the rest of my childhood in Arinda, which was a beautiful place to grow up. Very lucky to have grown up there. Um, And then I went away for college uh, after that, but spent the first 18 years of my life in California. 
Well, I know you were a competitive athlete in, in college and stuff, but was, was sports a pretty big part of your childhood growing up then? Like fitness, sports, athletics, stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. Growing up in a basically an all-boys household. I mean, my, my mom was there, but my dad was kind of like an 18-year-old an kid in certain ways growing up. Uh, so <laughs> he pushed us a lot in, in, in sports, and, uh, and we were fortunate enough to have him coach us in some of our teams and that sort of thing. And uh, so my mm-hmm. brother and I, Alex and I, played sports – all different sports growing up, pretty much everything but running. Actually, we did, uh, you know, baseball, football, soccer, swimming. And, uh, you know, we both thought we were going to be Michael Jordan and go to the NBA, which was definitely not happening. Same here. <laughs> same here. All right. So we, I mean, we're like around the same age. So we grew up around that time with MJ and the Bulls and they were taking over everything. And um, yeah, I mean, I think every dad had if their if their kids were playing basketball. They were for sure like, yo, you got to be the next Michael Jordan. You got to be the next MJ. So I, I well, could definitely you know, relate. Funny is, yeah. When I was growing up, I loved basketball. It was all, it was probably always my number one, but I, I never had any illusions of being Michael Jordan. I wanted to be like Byron Scott or, or Michael Cooper from Showtime <laughs> Lakers. Like the guy who posted up in the corner. I was at the three point line, you know, like I would be outside just shooting three pointers. This is get in there. This is it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Three and D. <laughs> no, that's he played a he played a big role, and uh, I I respect that. You're probably a really good teammate for that. Yeah, I was always sort of focused on. Uh, well, I just like you know to be perfectly honest, I was always one of the better three point shooters in my sort of grade in my in my school, and I just thrived on that because I was good at it. I focused on it. I loved shooting the three pointers and and being the guy who could make the three point shot, but. Yeah, I don't know. Basketball is such a fun sport. I, 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 John, it's one of those things that John and I never got past a certain level of competitiveness, but I, uh, in terms of c- competing in basketball, but it, I spent every day playing basketball as a kid. I had a basketball hoop on my driveway, and that's pretty much what I did in my free time. Yeah. You know? I can't it, become, it becomes your life for, for you know, as yeah. a kid. I feel like it really was all consuming that period of time, you know, for a lot of kids. Yeah, totally. I mean, we had the same thing basketball court in the driveway, and, uh, one-on-one games between me and Alex, my twin brother, got pretty heated. Uh, he, he would usually beat me in basketball because he's a little bit better than me at that sport. And the interesting transition into high school where you kind of develop into your sport, perhaps. I had an eighth grade teacher in PE, and we would run the mile for like physical education tests. And I was pretty decent at it. I would win it. And she was like, you should go out for cross country, Ben. And I was like, isn't cross country like skiing? What, what, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I didn't even realize that there was this sport of, you know, cross country where you could run and it was co-ed. So my brother and I went out our freshman year and I happened to do pretty well. And then we went out for our, so that was our, our fall sport. And then we both tried out for the basketball team, which was pretty competitive. And, uh, you know, I was used to doing pretty well in sports. Every other sport I would, I would be my brother at, uh, minus basketball. And uh, he made the freshman team at our high school, Maramonti High School, and I didn't. Wow. And, uh, oh, wow. So that was, that was kind of, a, you know, a hit to the ego and also just more like, uh, okay, I got to reevaluate. Like, I'm not going to be Michael Jordan. I'm not going to the NBA. If I can't even, my, my freshman basketball team. Hey, Mike got, uh, got cut. Mike got cut. He, you know? You get cut. So, you know, I wasn't defeated, but I started to explore like, wait a second. I was just like the frosh off MVP in cross country. And now they're getting excited about track season and like, what's up with that? So I went on and actually made the varsity track team in the spring. 
And uh, it was over from there. It was a wrap. I mean, there was girls on the team. I was running fast. <laughs> they liked that. So I Man. was like, I'll stick with this sport. I'm not telling them basketball <laughs> exactly nah the girls are cool man i remember that too i remember like oh wait a minute look at all these girls running around in short shirt short short shorts and i was like yeah i'm good i'm good this is cool i like track <laughs> and you get to oh, hang out with yeah. them you know yeah, yeah the no, COVID thing was was unique you know and you're not getting that on a on a boys basketball team and and really it was more of the coaching that we had from uh we had a coach who had just started Brian Henderson there and then another coach Jimmy McFadden our assistant coach and they kind of started developing our program for both cross country and track and they're just I just caught up with them a couple weeks ago on a zoom call and they're just great dudes I mean really solid good role models but also brought different uh perspectives of intensity and passion that just really helped all of us as athletes fall in love with the sport and the basketball team was a little more just hyper competitive and a lot of yelling from the coaches and not a lot of like positive <laughs> encouragement. I tend to be motivated by positivity and, and, and respect. And so I found that in the community of cross country and track athletes and coaches. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really what kept me doing it for so long because I continued it in, into college and then even beyond that, which uh, I was fortunate enough to do. So Ben, you, I don't know much about your high school career uh, in terms of like how fast you ran or anything, but I think you, you eventually went on to run at Duke University, right? And then uh, I'm curious to know about your college career because you ran competitively after university, but you had a, an interesting experience in university, my understanding, transferring schools, having some different experiences. So if you could tell us a little bit how, how that happened, uh, I'm really curious about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in high school, I was, I was decent i was pretty decent i mean i was i was the mvp of my team for a couple years but that's because i ran a lot of races and scored a lot of points and you know every (laughs) 800 all the way to the 3200 some meets running all three and then um you know even sometimes getting thrown in a four by four so you know i had i think a lot of discipline and heart but naturally i mean i was a good runner but i wasn't running the times that maybe john was or even perhaps you were brian you know i think my prs at the end of high school were like uh, 156 in the 800. I think I, I split like 50 point in the 400 and ran mm-hmm. 428 or something in the mile. So, you know, I was, okay. but I wasn't coming out getting recruited by, you know, large D1 schools. I had a couple offers from like small schools and primarily right. I was getting recruited academically. So, you know, I had good grades and uh, that's what got me into Duke amongst a number of other schools that I got into. And just mm-hmm. to answer your question about performing in college and then also uh, transferring. So my twin brother and I had interesting trajectories with our college applications. There's another guy who's a really big role model in my life, my college coach at Claremont coach, John Goldhammer, who's an amazing recruiter. And uh, he's got a D3 program at Claremont McKenna or Claremont Mud Scripps. It's a, a consortium, yep. but you've got three schools there, Claremont McKenna, Harvey Mudd and Scripps. And then we competed against Pomona Pitzer, which are also part of the consortium. So I applied to Pomona and Claremont and Duke and Emory and Berkeley and UCLA and variety of other schools. And uh, my brother just applied to Claremont. He, he's a little more gets in just, you know, if, hey, if I can get an early decision, then I have to apply to other schools. Like, this is a fit. And we went on a recruiting visit down there because Coach Goldhammer was being really diligent. Like, we need the twins. He would write us you know, um, <laughs> handwritten letters saying like, we need you guys both here. I'm following your results. We did decently well our junior year. So some, we were on some coaches radars, but you know, it's not like he was trying to pull us from necessarily like big D one schools recruiting us. 
Uh, and I think we had the academics to get in. So he saw, okay, maybe these guys will want to come here. Yeah. So we both went down on a visit there. We saw, I went and looked at, looked at Pomona, I looked at Occidental. And then I also got to go to a recruiting visit to Duke, work with the coach there, went to a couple other schools, Emory as well. But Alex was just like, we got there and he was like, I'm going here. Like, this is it. I'm just, <laughs> it's early yeah. decision. Right. And me being this very, like, maybe making it harder on myself, I applied to like 10 different schools. It was like, I'm not sure yet. I'm going to do all the applications, <laughs> see what happens. Maybe I'll yeah. get into like half the schools because some of these are pretty academically challenging. And then, you know, I can make my decision from there. And what happened for me was, Duke was the last recruiting visit I went on. I talked to the coach, met him in person for the first time, Norm Ogilvy there. And he was like, nah, we'd love to have you. You look like an athlete. Your times are legit. Like you can get in here academically. You know, if you're in, like we'd love to have you. So then I could basically walk on. I'm not going to get a scholarship there, anything like right, that. Right. And we didn't have many scholarships. We had a really good women's team, but the men's team was, uh, the scholarship was, there was one piece together. The women's <laughs> team for Title IX, reasons, which was cool. So long story short, I, I was vacillating between like Claremont, Pomona, and, and Duke. Those are the three schools kind of top on my list at the end of it all. And I was looking at these other ones and I mean, just circumstantially, I thought I would get into maybe a couple of the schools and then just make a decision. And I got into all of them. So like mm. every school I applied to. So I was like, oh crap, I got to like narrow this down. So then I, I got it down to those three and, um, my brother already knew he was going to Claremont and I was like, look, Claremont and Pomona are both in Claremont. If we're going to be independent and kind of, you know, chart our own path, then why don't I take this opportunity to go to a really good, you know, academic and athletic division one university and see what's up. So um, I tried it for two years and it wasn't the right fit for me just culturally. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reasons. So I would say culturally and weather wise. So we had a really bad winter my freshman year with like ice storms and tough to train in. We didn't have an indoor facility. A lot of right, people right. were getting injured, especially the men's team. Uh, nobody PR'd, no, no freshman PR'd. It was just like everybody, even some of the women were struggling, but we had two separate coaches. And the program was designed as such that you're just, everybody runs like 80 miles a week and in the mid distance program. And I wasn't used to that. I've run like 30 to 40 miles a week in high school. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so same here. Respond that well. And then outside of that, the vibe was just like, there didn't seem to be like a team community. It was more like, all right, some people have to be here because they have to do it. It's more like a job. And I just, that didn't seem like the right fit for me athletically. Academically, yeah. things were cool. I was really challenged in certain ways, but it was still really big classes. I kind of felt like a number in some of the bigger like macroeconomics classes where it's taught by, you know, Alan Keyes, the professor who's like a Nobel laureate or Nobel, you know, um, considered for the Nobel Prize. And then he doesn't really end up teaching the class. It's like a TA that's also super smart, who's a junior in undergrad, who's really teaching the material. And we're just kind of regurgitating what's in the textbook during the lectures. So some of those things for me just didn't seem good and didn't seem aligned with what I was looking for. And then I would say the biggest thing was, was culturally, there was just a lot of kind of country club east coast culture there that led to some self-segregation and social segregation in terms of race mm. uh, and um mm. it kind of left me just in the middle because i'm biracial and i had black friends and i had white friends and i had asian friends and latino friends and everything in between and i was used to that growing up in the bay um, right so yep. Yep. i think because of all of those factors it just didn't really feel like the right fit even after freshman year and i considered transferring 
but I, you know, I'm, I'm a disciplined person who was just like, you know, I got to see this through. I stayed one more year. And then, uh, after that second year, uh, I transferred after my sophomore year to Claremont McKenna. And did you find actually making the decision when you finally made the decision to do it? Was that tough or, or how did you feel after you, you're like, I'm actually going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to leave this big prestigious D one school, athletic school. Everybody knows Duke. I mean, it's a, yeah. one of the marquee names, right. And you're going to go to a smaller school. I mean, I'm curious how that, how the feedback you got from people, like I know a lot of people, we had teammates who started at UCLA and transferred to smaller schools and different schools because it was a better fit for them. And I yep. think they all felt good about it. It was the right decision for them. But I think in the moment it's quite difficult because there's a, a lot of people don't really understand. They might be like, what do you mean? You're at UCLA. Like, how can you go to whatever small school, you know, Claremont McKenna, for example. Totally. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but how, how difficult was it to make that decision? It was tough, man. I, I'm glad you asked. I was still growing as a person too. Like it's the first time I'm, I'm away from my family for, you know, that long a period of time away from all my friends who had primarily gone to California schools or West coast schools. So time change and all that, that was tough just staying in touch with them. Um, I think Facebook came out my freshman year. So it wasn't like <laughs> we had social media where we could just, yeah, no, you're right. you know, connect and that sort of thing. So yeah, the decision was really tough. I, I, I had to wrestle with myself for the first time, like, damn, am I not living up to my expectations? You know, everyone was so proud mm-hmm. of me for getting into this prestigious D1 athletic and academic powerhouse of a school. And am I not good enough, you know, to be here? And am I now transferring to some, you know, some place that's maybe safer, but, and, and a better fit, but, but, you know, maybe not as well recognized. You know, I had to, I had to do a lot of self work and introspection at that time. I was studying economics, so that was my intended major. And then I ended up picking up philosophy as a, a second major or a dual major because uh, I, I took my first philosophy class sophomore year and it started to get me to reflect on just like what my values were and who I was. Even being independent from Alex, my twin brother, like that was the first time I had just kind of been able to develop my own identity as an individual uh, mm. that's not kind of seen as a twin. So I think it was a really formative time and I'm grateful I went through it, but uh, damn, it was tough, man. You know, that was probably some of the hardest stuff I've ever gone through as far as just, am I going to just make a huge decision to, you know, transfer? Uh, But once I did to answer the second part of your question, oh man, it was the best decision I ever made. My time at Claremont, I still say was like the two best, two of the best years of my life. And uh, it was definitely a better fit all around. What would you say to people that, you know, especially young, uh, young, you know, this the upcoming generation, young people, even this class of 2020, I mean, they're actually going through one of the most unique transition periods in, in from being a high school, high school graduate to quote unquote, the real world being fully fledged adults. Is there any advice that you would give to help others to kind of like make that harder decision earlier in life in terms of this is a better fit for me, even though this thing looks good? It looks yeah. nice. It sounds nice. And everybody would praise me for it, you know, because I did it or I went there or I did this thing. Thank you for the, the question, John. I mean, you're right. There's a parallel to uh, I feel a feel for these, you know, especially high school and college seniors that are graduating in 2020 and have to miss out on in-person graduations and their plans maybe for a job or a college uh, next year in 2021 are completely up in the air. Uh, and the whole environment looks entirely different and mm-hmm. it, things are not according to plan. I think part of being 
an athlete or a good student is you learn discipline and you learn, okay, I have to plan. I have to have these things like all my ducks in a row. And the truth about life, as we can all attest to Brian, John and myself would be life doesn't happen according to plan. That that's, that's the reality. <laughs> you know, when, when you do, when life hits you hard in the face, it's like, dang, that's when you're really tested. Or that's when I feel like I've been really tested. And the most, gr- for me, the most growth has happened there. And so the advice I could give in short, which may, you know, dovetail into a further part of our conversation would be, I've learned through multiple times in my life where things didn't go according to plan. And I faced some heavy adversity that I can't control what's going on around me in those moments when things are so uncertain, like a global pandemic or like, you know, having my college plans at a big school that I thought was supposed to be a perfect fit change. That's minor compared to life and death situations or major career moves or relationships where you might get divorced or any variety of things, parenthood, um, you know, starting a business. I mean, these are real life things that fundamentally impact not just in, in my own life, but would impact everyone around me. Those are the decisions that get really hard. So mm-hmm. in the moment we think, oh, I got to control all this and it's not going according to plan. What I've learned in my humble experience thus far, 36 years of it is all I get to control is going inside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Going internal in order to do the work on myself so that I can be more prepared to process and react to a dynamically changing environment because life is always changing and Mm -hmm. nothing ever goes according exactly to plan. That being said, letting go of the control of all the external stuff and going more internal and working on these things inside of myself has allowed me to actually thrive in environments that don't go according to plan. So Mm -hmm. I would hope that these college seniors and high school seniors that are graduating in 2020 could maybe take something from that. And they already are. It's not for me to tell them, but they're experiencing it in real life because they're facing things heavily out of their control that are affecting our entire globe along with all the things that are happening more currently in the U S with, you know, talks about equality and changes in systemic institutions that have been in place since the beginning of our country. I am grateful that our future leaders, you know, high schoolers, um, college students, athletes as well are actually facing this turning point where they are going to have real life experience dealing with adversity and how they respond. Yeah. There's you can't, just to put it lightly, this is like one of the, the most crazy, pivotal moments in a person's life. I mean, you describe a pivotal moment making the decision to leave Duke and, and, and transfer to Claremont McKenna. And that's a big deal in that moment in your life. Like that's life changing, sure. world shattering. Like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I can't believe I'm sitting in this position kind of yep. decision. But so but the the way that that felt is the way that these moments that we're all experiencing right now also feels. The feelings are the same. Like, I always tell people, stress is stress. You know, if you feel stressed, you're stressed. You know, cortisol is cortisol. You know what I'm saying? Like, the stress hormone (laughs) is what it is. Whatever's causing it, the feeling is still the same. And so a pivotal moment is a pivotal moment. And I think that it's really important for people to hear what you said and to listen back to it because what you you're saying and could be applied to any pivotal moment no matter what it looks like no matter big how big it is it doesn't matter how big it is how you feel and how you deal with it and how you show up um Mm -hmm. 
and your attitude and perspective on it is really going to dictate how what happens from that moment going forward in your life. And ultimately, I think in many ways, how things turn out for you, which I think is a reflection based on what I know, having known you for so long and the life that you've lived and the successes that you've had and are going to have. I think that that's that bears true for you. Thank you. So, Ben, you finish you, you went to Claremont McKenna. You continued competing. Mm-hmm. Correct. After you finished up your university career, what, where did your life take you? Uh, sure. So I'll, I'll kind of explain just the highlights of uh, the transfer and then Claremont a little bit and then afterwards and I'll be short. Um, so at Claremont, because it was a good decision and a good fit, you know, Coach John Goldhammer, our assistant coach Kelly Beck, like lifelong friends of mine who became great mentors, along with my teammates and, just, you know, friends that I developed for life at Claremont McKenna. It's a smaller environment. It's in California. It's warmer. And, you know, now I'm competing on the D3 level. So where I was like struggling to make ACCs and at Duke and D1, like I'm coming on the scene kind of like tearing it up a little bit, Division Three. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so it was nice to get that transition. And yeah, I was able to have some, some success at Claremont. I qualified for nationals in the 800 meters. Uh, so I was able to do that, you know, my junior year. And then uh, we had a really strong team with some, some All-Americans and national champions. And so I was really pumped for like senior year of what we could do. What we were able to do senior year was we broke our school record in the four by 800 meters, which I think still stands actually. So that was kind of nice to leave our mark that way. And my twin brother on that team and two of my other teammates, Victor Camacho and John Newman. And then um, our four by four was really strong uh, both years. I got to compete with like one of my best friends, Ryan Martin, who was a multiple time All-American, 46 second 400 meter guy. And then our champion decathlete who... uh, like a 7,000 point, D, over 7,000 point decathlete, this guy, Matt Roberson, who was a D1 prospect as well, and then broke his uh, leg and Coach Goldhammer nabbed him because he compounded his leg <laughs> in uh, D3 instead. So that was nice to have that experience. And it motivated me because I won't get into the details, but I actually got injured my senior year. So I had really big goals mm. and then I got injured early on and pushed through my injuries so we could set our school record in the four by eight. But then still had that fire to compete after college. So to answer your question about what happened next, graduated with a dual degree in um, economics and philosophy. And then I went that traditional route. I had applied for jobs in the fall and uh, got a job in banking in 2007, which was the hot industry at the time. (laughs) (laughs) didn't know that that was not going to be the case uh, a year from then. In about one year, right? (laughs) But I I got in there. So I I got into this management training program. It's kind of a Wall Street style management training program in LA. And I was able to stay through that. But unfortunately, uh, or maybe, maybe looking back in hindsight, you know, silver lining, fortunately, but for better or for worse, crazy stuff happened in that year. Um, You know, we went into a recession but I was working in real estate finance, institutional real estate finance. So we were seeing the effects of the mortgage credit crisis in 07, like three months into my management training program. There's 30% layoffs at my company. And we're thinking oh. our management training program is going to get axed. They're paying us way too much money anyway. Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> somehow I kept my job and I, I finished the program. And we had about half the people in the program stay on and get offered an opportunity to work. And thankfully, I was one of those people. So I continued to work and I wanted to work in sales because I like working with people and I like connecting with people. 
But given the current state of the market in 08, when I graduated the program and things were going, I was like, sales is not where it's at. I'm going to go into something else. So I, I went into risk, a lot of uh, job security in that area. And <laughs> analysts in credit risk for like two or three years. I won't explain all of that, but it was a, it was a really a time where I learned a lot due to the circumstances. Again, not going according to plan and just learning in the fire. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Um, looking back on it, I learned a lot from it, but it sucked, yeah. man. We were working a lot of hours and we were stressed every day and, you know, management didn't know what was going to happen. Our company got acquired by bank of America. I stayed on with them and it was a wonderful learning experience looking back in hindsight, but not at the time, man, it was, it was stressful for sure. Mm. Um, and part of the reason it was doubly stressful is that I had some wild stuff happening with my family at that same time in 08 uh, when we're going through a recession and I'm just hanging on to my job somehow some way working in banking my dad uh, came to visit and explained to me that he was going to be going to federal prison uh, so after uh, this wonderful childhood he tells wow. me that he you know, he's facing like a lot of time in federal prison and the investigation was ongoing at that time but uh, that's when I first got that news as well Wow. So, so you have a lot of job risk, family turmoil, everything's going on. How, how close were you at this time with your brother? I'm, I'm curious now, you, you just find out your dad's going to go to prison. How did, what did that do for your family? How did your family respond to that? It was tough. Uh, so I'm very close to my brother. And unfortunately, at that time, he was working on a trade desk on the East Coast in Florida. So we had that time difference. We had kind of flip-flop. He tried the East Coast for his first year. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it was just hard to connect, you know, with family. And I was also working a lot of hours and living in the LA area. And my mom was up in the Bay Area with my dad yeah. at the time. So it was tough for me to make time to go see family, to get some sort of just grounding and connection and stability in my life. Um, mm -hmm. But also a challenging time because... I didn't really feel comfortable divulging all this stuff to people at work, mainly yep. because there was people getting fired or let go, laid off left and right at work. So, you know, I didn't want to be one of those people on the chopping block. If I was like, look, I got to take some kind of leave or, you know, this is happening. As well. Wow. So I kind of kept it to myself and uh, I focused, you know, I, I got to connect with my family as best I could, but I, I just, I poured myself into work and track and field. So those were the two things that I felt like externally I could control and I wasn't as wise to know, hey, I need to work on myself internally at this point. And I just really focused on those two things, which have been kind of like things I was able to succeed at previously, school and track. And so now it was like work and track. And um, I just put a lot of my energy into that because it gave me this sense of, you know, this maybe um, false sense of something that I could have control over. So you said it was 2008. That's when your, your father went to prison? Yes. You know, his story is very uh, nuanced, but yeah, he got investigated and then uh, was supposed to go to prison on a plea deal. He actually fled the country, um, unbeknownst to us, just kind of in between a rock and a hard place, thinking I think that he could outsmart everybody. So he got the book thrown at him. He was gone for a while. He, he went to Cuba and yeah. then he got extradited back to the United States. So I think technically in the US, he was put in prison in 2009. But right. I mean, it was, it was just a mess uh, that entire time, uh, because he was making decisions just on the fly. And uh, he ultimately ended, ended up getting a 15 year sentence in, in prison. Wow. So at this point, 
you have all this going on in your life and the job is uh, the economy's tanking and you're in flux. And, and I think, is this when you decided to, to completely change your career? Uh, I, I'm not sure the time frame on this, but I don't know you as a banker. I know you as somebody who owned a fitness company in Hawaii. Yeah. So I'm curious how that transition happened. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a relevant question. So not quite. I, I wanted to make sure that I was there for my mom. And when my dad did go to prison, she was going to need support. So I stayed working at Bank of America all the way through 2010, early 2010. Okay. But I, I had a chance to go compete because I still had this fire in me to like, Hey, I, I got I still got unfinished business on the track. I got injured my senior year, didn't get to reach the goals that I wanted. And I was like, I, I think I can run faster. So, uh, so I, I connected with a semi-pro team, Olympic development team called VS Athletics in Santa Monica and uh, competed with them in all of 2009. And then I had an opportunity to go uh, in the, that summer to compete for Team USA in something called the Maccabee Games in Israel. I was probably in the best shape of my life at that point, feeling you know, emotionally drained, but physically just put a lot of my energy into getting stronger on the track. Yep. So I went to Israel on a three-week trip to compete for Team USA in the Maccabee Games, uh, which is kind of like a Jewish Olympics, if people don't know what that is. You have to be Jewish to compete, but USA sends like a 900 or 1,000 person delegation. And I think there's 7,000 wow. athletes competing from 70 different countries in this event. So it's, wow. the, it's okay. the third largest sporting event in the world behind the Universiata and the Olympic Games. So it's a large event and it's pretty cool to go experience something like that. And uh, very cool. to answer your question, that's when I had this moment to just exhale and think about my life and, you know, not mm, just focus right. on what was in front of me and banking and track mm -hmm. and just, you know, trying to control the controllables. And so I was like, dude, the banking is not it at all. <laughs> That's not, you know, this, this major thing is happening with my family. It's getting turned upside down. I'm learning a lot in banking and it's intellectually challenging, but it's not my passion. And uh, I started to really think about what I am passionate about. And it's, you know, similar to your guys' story probably as well, like helping others and health and wellness. And that's when mm -hmm. the seeds started to get planted. Um, and then I came back. I, I told the bank I would come back. So after I did, I, I came back for about six months, um, worked with the bank, Bank of America. And then um, I went out on a limb and uh, decided, hey, I'm going to make a change. And I had gone and visited my brother in Hawaii because he was living there at the time. We came up with this idea for fitness concierge, fitness type business. Uh, I had always wanted to go back and get an MBA, just kind of your typical corporate route and study entrepreneurship. And a lot of mentors I was mm -hmm. talking to at the time were like, why don't you try starting a business? And it seemed to make sense before dropping, you know, 200 grand on an MBA, which would have been coming out of my own pocket to try starting a business and see if I could get some experience, see if I was even any good at it. That's what led to, I wrote the business plan on my way home from that trip to Hawaii. Uh, on the plane ride home. And uh, I still have that with me. And uh, it just hmm. outlined a fitness and wellness business um, in Hawaii that was low risk, and that could then expand to do like corporate work. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 plus years. How old were you when that decision was made? Like when you were flying back from Hawaii and, and ready to make that change? 25. 25? 25, 26. Yeah. Wow. I guess I was 26, I think when I moved to Hawaii. Yeah. Do you believe people should have their stuff figured out by that time or as you know, like this? Because I feel like there's that whole misconception. What would you say to people that kind of are being told, hey, you got to know what you need to be doing and, and all that stuff? Because obviously 
you you made some changes, man, here and there, and 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 you were working your way through discovering what was going to be right for you. Yeah, yeah, totally. The short answer to that question is definitely not. You don't need to have it all figured out by any age. My life yeah. experience taught me that you know life is. I like to stay curious and I like to be surprised by what life has to offer. And having been an entrepreneur now for the last 10 years, it's exciting to me to see like, oh, wow, I thought things were going to go a certain way and now they're going a completely different way. And going back to just being able to control what we can, that's the beauty to me of being an entrepreneur and just being a human. You know, life is going to throw you curveballs and different things. And it's a very interesting and oftentimes doesn't make any sense, but things will align in my life, at least if I continue to go back to discovering what I can do in myself to respond to a situation. Uh, So I definitely didn't have things figured out at 25 or 26. I had a business plan written that Mm -hmm. fortunately has gone more or less, you know, to plan, but not nearly in the ways that I thought it would. I thought I would have an MBA from Stanford or Berkeley by now and be doing entrepreneurship because of that. And I've been doing grad school work and positive psychology and personal development work with men's groups, training clients who have become mentors. And that's how my business has thrived because I've been able to partner with different companies and just grow it in an organic way, not in any way that I, you know, could have planned out at 26. I really like your focus on that you had said earlier, you know, you can only control what's inside of you and focusing on what you can control. And I think that's also true for trying to decide what you want to do with your life. Like at a certain point, the world around us is constantly changing. Like the thing that might be the the perfect thing for you might not even have been invented yet, but it could arrive in two years. And when that happens, if you've kind of done some of the work to know what you want to do and you're, you're conscious about that, you're more likely to recognize that that opportunity is now aligned to where you should be. And, and maybe you'll be more likely to take the risk or to take the chance to try it out. And a lot of things, I think you just don't know what you like doing until you do it. My personal example, I spent seven years working at Apple mm-hmm. and I got the job because I had a, a grad school classmate who worked there. And I'll be perfectly honest, I was not really qualified for that job in terms of my background mm-hmm. skills, right? For what they were doing. But the reality of that job was they had a small team mm-hmm. It was completely in turmoil because the the person who was leaving had just kind of like made that whole situation bad, right? <laughs> and 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 everybody was at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. And my friend who worked on the team was like, you know who's really fun to work with is Brian. He can learn how to do the job. Let's bring him in mm-hmm. because everyone will get along with him. And then I started doing the job and I, th- I realized like I, you would, I would never have known that like software, project management, report building, report analytics, all these other topics that it was something I was even interested in. I actually studied philosophy like you in, in university. Well, and uh, it's a perfect it fit. fit with me. <laughs> it fit with me because it's so logical, right? Like the, like software and, and all this, um, all the logic of, of the analytics and stuff was very logical and, and I, and I kind of got it. But if you had asked me what would be a good fit for you, I never would have I never would have thought to go down that path. It was wow. just kind of taking opportunities that came to work with people I liked working with and those taught me some of what I liked and what I didn't like, you know, and I'm not doing it now. And that's not a hundred percent because I don't, because I don't like it. It's more just because I have other things I'm, I feel are a little bit more central to me mm-hmm. that yeah. I want to pursue than what I was doing before, you know? Yeah. It's a lifelong, you know, adventure and journey to 
find the things that we are most passionate about, the things that we value most in life. And those things can change as humans. You know, we have different reactions to different circumstances. We have different people come into our life, different opportunities. You know, what I'm hearing you say, Brian and John, is just, it's, you know, there's a level of preparation and planning that we know needs to go in as, you know, students, as athletes, as, as business owners, as fathers, you know, whatever the case is. And then there's life. And if, if we try to control all these things externally and we don't go internal to do the work on ourselves first to understand, like, what is it that I'm really passionate about? What really drives me? What things can I do that are going to be sustainable, that fulfill me and help me live my life's purpose? That's the stuff that they don't teach you in school. They don't teach you even in sports. Yeah. And it's, you know, th these are the things that, that when, when I started to learn some of these lessons due to the circumstances in my own life and mm -hmm. the people I had around me, that my life started to open up in ways that I never would have expected and in ways that have been beautiful, that have led to, you know, a lot of success, I guess you could call it, or just beautiful opportunities that have continued to grow and yeah. evolve uh, that, that I'm super grateful for. And I couldn't imagine my life going in a different, more planned, logical, you know, structured direction that it, that I thought it would go in before. It's it's great listening to what you're saying as you describe your journey because I feel like the thing that keeps coming up for me is you, you mentioned the planning, but pl we all know that the, the, the planning, things don't ever go 100% according to plan. So if we get stuck on the plan, That's right. you're just going to get stuck when things don't work out. You're like, well, now what do I do? It's This is not fitting. It's like, you know, trying to fit you know, a, 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 was it a square peg in a round hole or something like that? It's like, it's not working. So mm -hmm. what, what's, what's interesting to me is like the idea of, well, the planning isn't necessarily like, you don't do it because it's gonna, everything's gonna work out the plan. You do it because you need to do the work. You need to start to understand what doesn't work, what might work. You start to need to carve out a clear, a clearer idea of the direction that you want to take and when you do this kind of work and you start to go down the path, because that's one of the biggest challenges is people don't go for stuff. They don't make decisions. You were making decisions, which is great. You were clearly making decisions, trying things. You also had the discipline to be dedicated to the thing you're trying. So you give it a real shot, but then you had the wherewithal to be able to pivot. I think because you were doing the work leading up to these different things that you were experiencing, whether it was going to Duke and then transferring, whether it was Bank of America to then jumping and saying, hey, I'm going to do this uh, entrepreneurial thing and not even go to grad school right off the bat. So you were always able to make decisions, but I think it's because you did the work and you did the planning and you were at least thinking ahead. You, were, you weren't just settling for stuff and letting life happen to you. You were actually making things happen because you were putting in the work. And I think that's kind of like this reoccurring theme is... Don't don't get stuck on the plan, but make plans, you know, like have ideas, start to commit to some things and be prepared to pivot when, when things aren't working. But keep using that same approach to keep moving forward. And that's what you've done. And wow. I mean, I'm very impressed. I don't I mean, where in the world does that actually come from for you uh, or what do you attribute that to? I should say, because that's impressive. I would just give a short answer to that. I would say life experience and, you know, the lessons that I learned from my mom, my dad, my family, my loved ones, my ancestors, the people close to me, just tapping into really like my spirit and who I am. 
instead mm-hmm. of just what society wants me to be. Uh, it's like going mm-hmm. inside and using the strength of all the family members and friends that I have. And I'm talking, this is going to get a little spiritual, but like ancestors going back, I got a lot from my mom and dad and my grandparents, but even, you know, the ancestors before them that did this work and put me in the position I was in coming into the world, that internal work and that kind of spiritual work is what has allowed me to let go of control and adapt to just the flow of life and the adventure of life. Mm Mm-hmm. There's a quote that I think is attributed to to Eisenhower, the old president, which is plans are worthless, but planning is everything. Mm. And I think the key, the key thing, I think it's getting exactly what you're saying, John, is you have to make plans because the act of planning is what's going to help you to think through mm. whether you want to do it, whether you're going to be successful, what obstacles you're likely to encounter, who you need to support you, you know, all these other things that are going to, that, that the path that's going to define the path to your success but the actual plan that you've made is probably not going to come about. Like there's going to be so many things outside of your control, going back to something that you mentioned before that you, you're not going to be able to control that the road that you thought you're going to go down is blocked for some reason that, mm-hmm. that you couldn't have predicted. But if you've done the work to plan, you'll also have an idea of what you can do in that situation. And I always love that idea. I feel the same way about goal setting. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the goal you set is not really the most important thing. It's the act of setting the goal and how you go about setting the goal that's going to define more likely it's going to define your success. Not so much the, the fact that you have a goal, right? It's, it's really key. And being able to accept that the parts of you, your life that are out of control, don't stop you from what you're trying to achieve. They might slow you down. They might make you take a detour, but they're not going to stop you as long as you have a mindset to navigate around them and to, I don't know, anticipate them emotionally so that you're not, mm-hmm. you're not totally derailed when they, when they occur. Mm-hmm. I agree. You brought up emotions at the end of all of that. (laughs) So yes, (laughs) that's it. That I think as athletes and alpha males and students, you know, or even professionals, we're taught like that doesn't come into play. You know, it's all about logic and planning and structure and, you know, preparedness and metrics and, you know, what are we, what are the results? Yeah. Those are all important. Ultimately we're emotional beings. And, uh, you know, if I, continue the story of where these, this adventure led me, it led me to actually feeling my emotions and doing it in a structured way with everything happening. As I started my company, what started to happen, I started a company called one fitness in, in Maui. It was a Mm -hmm. fitness and wellness company that was designed to work with individuals to do personal training and fitness classes and outdoor adventures but I wanted to have it aligned with my lifestyle. Like we're doing things outdoors. We're helping people actually have a unique experience to lead healthier, happier lives. Um, so I started to look at ways that I could do things outside of the traditional model and bring people on hikes to waterfalls or, you know, do beach workouts uh, with the beautiful setting that we had in Maui. Those are the types of activities that I started to do with some of my clients And that got me more connected to myself being out in nature, physically interacting with clients, but also helping them improve their lives, mind, body, and spirit. The mana, the the energy in Hawaii is very present. It's a very sacred place. That spirit of aloha as well was like, you can't deny it when you're there. So Mm -hmm. helping people tap into that more sacred, emotional, spiritual part of themselves, however deep they were willing to go is the type of things that just started happening with uh, some of my clients. 
and it was facilitated by a few different things. You know, I was lucky enough to have some partnerships with some pretty good businesses. And that's why I stayed in Hawaii for as long as I did. I had the opportunity to do some work with Nike and Lululemon and the Ritz Carlton and uh, another ultra luxury hotel called Montage and uh, developed really good relationships with these brands, um, which gave me access to some really interesting opportunities and clientele, but also started to do more personal work myself with two organizations that I want to talk a little bit about. One is the Mankind Project, which is a men's organization that's a nonprofit. It's international. And we do work with circles of men all across the country and the world. And uh, there's a pretty big presence in Hawaii and in Maui in particular. And I was able to go on an initiation weekend with this organization where I had no idea what I was getting into. I was on a hike with a doctor friend and a chiropractor friend. And the doctor was trying to convince the chiropractor to do it. Chiropractor was one of my best friends on Maui, Dane Asman. He uh, convinced him to do it. And then alongside it, he convinced my brother and myself to try it out. So we spent 500 bucks, went to this weekend up in Kanai off the grid in Maui and went to this men's weekend. It's called a new warrior training adventure. And uh, it introduced me to a world of personal development and growth and men's work where we're working on emotional fluency. Uh, we're working on connection to our own spirituality, our own ancestors, not in a pre-prescribed way, but an individual journey by sitting mm. in circles with men and basically talking about our feelings and our emotions, which mm. alpha males growing up in, at least from my, in my experience, we, I didn't do that. Uh, you know, I didn't do that with my yeah. brother. I didn't do that with my dad for sure. And I definitely didn't do that with my, you know, athletic teammates that were like, nah, we don't, we don't cry. We don't, you know, get sad. We don't, we don't lose. We, we win. And if anything, we just get frustrated or angry. And then we figure out a logical way to win. You know? <laughs> uh, so right. that, that was the environment I grew up in. And this was a whole new world for me. So you got really into that. Did that change the trajectory of what you're working on? It, or is that a side project for you? Or is, or is that now like really what you're dedicated more towards? in your career? Well, the interesting part is I'm all about trying to incorporate what I'm passionate about in my life with my work. And I run right, my own right. business so I can do that whenever and however I want to do it. So what I started to do was just experiment with the different things I learned in the Mankind Project. So I went on mm -hmm. to do what's called primary integration training, where I trained to facilitate these groups. I went on to staff several retreats of men. These are talking about like 30 men initiating, 60 men staffing it. So 100 men in, on a weekend off the grid, you know, going through a very powerful experience. Did four or five of those in Maui where I staffed them. And then I started hosting men's groups at my house in Maui for wow. the last five or six years. That work is the same type of work I was able to bring to my business because I was developing skill sets to facilitate, to coach, to just tap into mind, body, spirit in a whole different way. So I was able to bring that stuff into the work I did with my clients and with companies. Some of the companies I mentioned, we did some retreats together. And then um, it pushed me even as far as going, getting involved with a group called Inside Circle, which was the other organization I wanted to mention. They're based in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. They do this men's work in prisons. And so, you know, to tie it all together with the first yep. part of my story, I started going into the prison in Maui and doing uh, this kind of men's work in circles and prisons in Maui or the prison in Maui, I should say. And then uh, I've continued that work here with Inside Circle, uh, which is an amazing organization that I would love for people to look into if they're listening here in the Bay Area. And they go into prisons here in California and, and they're now expanding all across the country. 
And how long have you been doing that going into prison? So uh, I would say it's been a little over a, a well, been going into the prison since my dad got incarcerated in 2000. Well, I guess but, that's uh, true. <laughs> I, I've, uh, and I've been visiting there regularly every year, but I've been doing this inside circle work for the past two years and a uh, year in Maui okay. and then for the past year here in the Bay Area. Um, and it, we haven't been able to go into the prisons here because of COVID, but I've been doing work right. with the organization and developed a good relationship with their executive director, Eldra Jackson, who's just an amazing human being and uh, spent time in prison himself and then uh, now leads the organization because he's been released. I have a question. I, I guess I'll, I'm curious. Do you find that the interactions in the prisons mm-hmm. are more or less the same to the interactions with the with the men's groups you have outside of them or or are they substantially different that's a beautiful and really great question it's very insightful they're very similar i mean we're humans yeah like you with the same stuff you know i've been lucky enough just as a juxtaposition to have clients who are celebrities i've had clients who are professional athletes i've had clients who are ceos of major companies that you would know I'm not going to mention them here just for confidentiality sake, but I got luckily introduced to a really high level of clientele who maybe have not had to experience the type of life that maybe someone who's gone to prison has, has had to experience. And they have a lot of resources and, you know, a lot of opportunities themselves and a lot of power. I've also, you know, I've done personal development work with them and I've gone into prisons and dealt with people, you know, and, and sat alongside inmates dealing with a system that doesn't give them any freedom and doesn't give them any of the opportunities, not even a sliver of what those people that I just mentioned would have. Right. And the same things come up, the same issues around family, the same issues around lessons we've been passed on by our fathers or mothers, experiences Mm -hmm. that we've had in our childhood that we're still make us feel insecure about ourselves or make us feel uncomfortable with who we are and make us question who we are. Traumatic experiences that we've had that we need to work through in order to become better men, to become better humans. Mm -hmm. And seeing that in prison has had a profound impact on my experience just as a human being and all the things that are going on today with equality and criminal justice and, you know, Black Lives Matter and the system, you know, really the prison system that we have in the United States and the level of authority that gets abused in the United States, we could go on and on and have a whole separate podcast about this. But to answer your question directly, it's the same shit. We deal with the mm-hmm. same work, whether our shadows come up in different ways and our gold shows up in different ways. The shadows that we all deal with, they're human experiences. And they're oftentimes related to very basic things like our emotions and our experience with our families growing up, our childhood. And then beyond that, the messages that we tell ourselves as a result of these, you know, light and dark experiences that we all have. Mm. Ben, have you, so has this work, did it change your relationship or did it affect your relationship with your father? In any way? Yes. Uh, it allowed me to process what was going on with my father and my family in a completely different way. So I was mm-hmm. then in a position where I had to learn skills to be able to process my own deep and painful emotions around my dad's imprisonment. My mom and dad didn't speak to each other for 10 years. 
my brother and I had to facilitate communication between them. And fortunately, they started speaking again just a couple years ago, about a year and a half ago before my dad passed away in prison. So though, yes, it, it, it changed the way that I was able to process my situation and relationship with my entire family, including, mm-hmm. you know, in a big way, my, my dad. So you mentioned your dad passed away. Uh, this is fairly recently. Well, it's a delicate question. I'm not sure how to ask you, but I, I know that you were in prison. You're working on this relationship. And now you have this, this period where he passes away. If you could, I don't know, describe for us a little bit the circumstances and how, how you've been able to process that. Because I'll be honest, my dad passed away as well, actually, many years ago. And it was a very traumatic experience for me in a way, not in a surprise or any kind of ma- major way. But you know, you, it's very difficult to lose a parent. And uh, it took a long time to come to grips with some of it, you know, the causes, what's, why, all that kind of, you ask these kind of questions and stuff. And I know you're kind of going through it now, so maybe you don't have a lot of perspective to, to be able to put on it. But I think you have a unique perspective because you've been putting this work in mm. on yourself and you've been working in prisons and you've been working on that relationship with your dad. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering how you're processing it now and, and how that situation affected you. Yeah, it's a, it's a big question and I'm happy to try to tackle it as best I can. Yeah. So it's always hard to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and with everything going on, whether it's, you know, male and female or black, brown or white, or being the CEO of a multinational company or being an inmate in a prison, it's hard for us to look at somebody else's life and really get deep in there and figure out like what it would really feel like to be in someone else's shoes because we actually can't. We can only feel like what our experience is. And with my dad passing away, I'll just relay some data and then I'll explain a little bit more why why I started with that. Everyone can relate to losing a parent though. And that's why I wanted to start with that is that that's something that we all have family um, or people that we consider family. And we can all relate to if I lost a loved one, if I lost a father or a mother or a brother or a sister, or, you know, God forbid a son or a daughter what would that Mm -hmm. feel like? And even if we can't fully relate to losing a father in this case, we can still understand losing a loved one, losing a relationship, losing connection with people that we love. And what happens is grief. It's a lot of grief because I look at grief as something that's going to last the rest of my life around my dad's death. But I also look at it as coming from a place where I have a lot of love and I still have a lot of love to give my dad and I just can't physically give it to him. I have to give it to him Mm -hmm. spiritually or some other way. So with all that being said, here's what happened with my dad. And I'll try to just highlight. Um, His story is again, very broad and this isn't going to do it justice, but specifically surrounding his passing, he was five months from going to a halfway house, four or five months from going to a halfway house and less than a year from being released. He was going to be 12 and a half years with good behavior and he was scheduled to get mm-hmm. released officially February of 2021. And they usually put you in a halfway house to transition out. And that was going to happen sometime at least six months prior to that date. So okay. we were taught, my dad passed away on April 30th, 2020, and he was most likely going to get it released to a halfway house, you know, four months later. He served right. over 80% of his sentence and was, you know, textbook for being what we were trying to get, which was called compassionate release. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. When COVID hit prisons in the US and in California, 
we were well ahead, my family, of the fact that if it got into his prison, he was going to be very high risk. My dad was 73 and a half when he passed away. He had had a quintuple bypass surgery in prison back in 2012. He had congestive heart failure. We were working on trying to get him better medical attention. And he was transferred to this low security prison, uh, the lowest security called FCI Terminal Island, which is near Long Beach in Southern California, that has medical facilities that are better than other facilities. So that's where he was being housed. And he had gone through a rehabilitation program and was being ready to be released, barring we could, you know, st- he could stay medically stable. He had been experiencing like shortness of breath and other things related to his heart condition. He had had bouts with pneumonia prior to that, you know, other things, and he's high risk. So when COVID hit the prisons, my family was all over it. And I, I think John can attest to the fact that I'm, I'm pretty detail oriented. I'm not going to let it slip. So when my dad's life is in, you know, in the balance, I'm going to make sure we're in touch with attorneys. We're following up with the prison and we're doing everything we can to get him to safety if possible. So right. we will the entire month of April to get him what's called compassionate release. And I won't go into all the details of how that needs to happen. We were doing every single thing in our power, working with an attorney, a federal public defender actually, which was the best person in this case to handle this because they have direct contact with the federal prisons system. We were working with a Jewish organization called the Olive Institute, which was very helpful in getting us resources to help my dad doing everything we possibly could, staying up, you know, night and day, sending emails within our family, working with the attorney, having my dad request compassionate release through the prison, having our attorney request the same thing, contacting the prison on multiple occasions and heard nothing back from them. This is starting in the beginning of April, late March, really. The prison just in short, completely mismanaged the entire coronavirus situation. They had Two, it started with two positive cases, one staff who apparently brought it in and one inmate. And they would give us no information. All they would do is update a website every day. And in the preceding weeks, we're watching these numbers climb, as you can imagine, in a small prison where you can't socially distance and you have no freedom to protect yourself, not a lot of medical supplies, no masks, no coverings. They don't have the ability to protect themselves, these inmates, against a coronavirus outbreak. And it's such tight quarters. It's dorm-style housing, you know, metal all around. It's going to spread like wildfire. And it had in other prisons previous to FCI Terminal Island. Mm -hmm. So we're watching these numbers climb across the Federal Bureau of Prison Systems. Lompoc, where my dad used to be housed for the majority of his sentence, had a huge outbreak and then worked to contain it. Their numbers also exponentially increased. FCI Terminal Island's numbers just, it would blow your mind. And I won't go into all the detail. I'll just say this. At the end of the outbreak, this is a couple week period, they have 1,055 inmates in the prison. Seven, oh, almost 700 of them were COVID positive at the end of this outbreak. Oh my gosh. 70% of the prison. And, you know, then a, a few staff members as well. And right. my dad stayed healthy all the way through until we think April 23rd or April 24th, which is like three weeks after the outbreak happened and three weeks after he had already requested compassionate release and we continue to work on this. And we get no response from the prison. Um, I get a call from a unit manager who's somebody responsible at the prison for these kind of things. She informs me on Sunday, April 24th, I believe it was, that my dad was in the hospital. She couldn't tell me why. We're, of course, very scared and worried about his health. We're hoping for the best, hoping maybe it's to 
you know, due to our efforts that he's getting his congestive heart failure addressed and getting his heart tested and it's a safer place for him to be as a very high-risk patient. She can't tell me if he's COVID positive. She can't tell me anything else about the situation. She promises me that she will follow up because I have a series of questions to ask her about follow-ups of all the requests that we had made in my dad's medical condition. We continue to call the jail every day for the next four days. I personally did that. Left voicemails with her and her team. Heard nothing. The next call I get is on Thursday, April 30th, and it's from a chaplain. And the moment I get this call is the emergency contact. My heart just sank. I knew it wasn't good news. Either my dad's COVID positive or maybe worse. He told me it's not going to be good news. And then he told me that my dad had passed away earlier that morning. So you didn't get a chance to, nobody in your family got a chance to speak with him then? No. Um, We hadn't spoken to him for weeks because they shut off phone communication inside the prison to try to prevent the spread. Uh, Oh, man. It was was tough, man. It was a crazy time. And why I want to tell that story and answer your question more thoroughly now is that you asked, well, how did you process that? And so immediately, this is what happened. I was, I went through a range of emotions on that call. It was about a 30 minute call with the chaplain. You know, first I was just frustrated and angry that of the lack of communication, just the, the lack of human rights really that I think would be basic human rights that we would be afforded in that circumstance. And my dad would be afforded in that circumstance. Yep. And then, you know, I realized I'm talking to a chaplain and he's just delivering the message. So after processing that for a couple minutes and talking to him about my concerns, to try to help these other inmates and explain that this is just inhumane. He told me, I will pass that on to the leadership and the warden here. I went into a lot of sadness, just the loss, you know, the pain of my dad is gone. Underneath all that, as I worked through that was a lot of love and, you know, this deep love for my dad um, and just wanting him to feel comforted, trying to comfort myself, thinking about my family and everybody affected my mom, my brother, and, and, you know, uncle and cousins and everybody else in, in the picture. And then underneath that was even some forgiveness and just some sense of like, kind of, okay, something big just happened, but something did just happen. Mm-hmm. So I went in my shower. I'm, I'm looking at it right now because I'm in, in my, my house and I went in my shower. I cleansed for like 20, 30 minutes, just cried in the shower and, you know, tried to just cleanse myself. And I was, you know, experiencing all those emotions again. And there was just a, a lot of, you know, pain and sadness and, and loss. Um, but then a, a lot of love coming back and forgiveness and, uh, and some, this weird sense of like light and, uh, and, um, just a light, a light sense. And I had this vision of my dad up in the sky with my ancestors, his mother and father, my grandparents, all our other ancestors just smiling. And, uh, mm-hmm. he's finally free. His spirit is finally free. And it was the first time I could feel that or say that for 12 years, but really feel it. And so, I had this, amongst all the other emotions, this sense of like freedom and lightness. And then I just had a cleaner relationship with my dad from that moment on. It was this spiritual relationship now. There was no pain. There was no suffering. That that chapter was over and we could have a clean connection again, a clean relationship where love could flow freely. And just we had freedom to, to connect in that way, spiritually and otherwise. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like you said, you can't really understand how where somebody else is at. I'm, I am very glad that you are at what seems to be a good place. I, I can't imagine what it was like to go through it. Uh, my own experience, it took me a long time. I kind of went numb. I kind of, uh, to be honest, my dad passed away, and two weeks later, I moved to Japan, and I just sort of, it was a strange thing. I was very, very uh, sort of alone. But 
it gave me also independence and freedom to just work on it on my own way in my own way because there was nobody there was nobody else in my life who was going to affect that mm -hmm. and stuff and so wherever you're at now i can promise you you're only part way there it's a long it's a long process and it's going to take a lot more time to to work through it but it seems like you're in a good place and i'm and i'm happy about that <sighs> thank you for sharing with us actually yeah. I, I i there's a lot we are, we have strong opinions john and i we can we could talk about criminal justice and all these other things we've been we've been doing this for a long time and we don't really want the podcast to be about those topics you know we want it to be about people like you who are overcoming amazing obstacles, making big decisions, pursuing the dreams that you want to pursue. And actually that, that makes me think, I want to end this. I want to talk about, just give you a chance a little bit. What are you doing now? And what's, what's the next steps for you? What is your go be more goal? Your go be more dream. What are you pursuing now for your life? Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for giving me an opportunity to share that story. I'm going to bring it back and then I'm going to bring it through to your question. So I'm going to try to tie it sure. together and it may work and it may not work at all, but I'm going to hey, have fun with it, man. It's all good. It's all good. So, so, you know, we just talked about some heavy stuff and some heavy emotions and like, yeah, that's going to be present and it's going to be present with me for the rest of my life. It's part of my story now. It's part of my, this, this adventure of life of processing this grief and this tragic circumstance with my dad. And that was 12 years of his life that were really painful and 12 years of my life that were really painful for that moment. All these other things were happening at that time. I had the opportunity to live in Hawaii and start my own business and grow it to what it is now. I had these past experiences that Brian, you and John have eloquently asked me about, you know, transitions from California growing up biracial as a Filipino Jew to, you know, moving to the East Coast to go to Duke for college and then transferring schools to Claremont McKenna and what that experience was like and then having a twin brother and you know what does it look like once you get into banking in a recession and all of these pieces of my life that i can draw on those past experiences for me to show up as a more grounded more experienced just more real human being and use some of the lessons that i've learned along the way and use my brothers and my sisters that i crown myself with to help me through the experiences that I'm having in life right now. And those senses of community and drawing on past experience and being vulnerable, talking about emotions, talking about experiences, not hiding from those light and dark experiences, but really just owning them and being responsible for them has allowed me, I think in this stage of my life to move in a much more healthy and grounded direction. So now that we've kind of talked about what happened, going forward, I'm just grateful that I have this opportunity. I've, because of some of the hard things I've faced in my life, I've followed my passion and my heart and my spirit to do what I really love to do. So with One Fitness, after 10 years in Maui and, you know, growing the business there organically, I was able to transition to the Bay Area where I live now. Um, I live in Mill mm -hmm. Valley, which is just north of San Francisco. I've had to start a new LLC here because my old LLC of One Fitness was in Maui. And so I started something in the beginning of 2020 called Maui Method. It is all of the, some of the experiences that I've taken with me and then right. also the connections that I've been able to make from Maui, from my life before that in California and everywhere else. It's, it's really a sum of those parts. And I'm now doing still health and wellness related things. I still train clients physically, 
but I also have the opportunity to expand my business, which is always the plan to do corporate wellness, executive coaching on authentic things like leadership, team building, mindfulness, peak performance, these types of experiences that I've been exposed to. And then I've had the pleasure of bringing people in like John, like another few people I'm going to mention, friends of mine who are very accomplished people, way more badass than me, Olympians, <laughs> etc. And some of the facilitators I work with now in Maui Method, I'm able to bring them to corporate groups and bring them to individuals to coach them through all areas of life, mind, body, and spirit in whatever way that they need. And I'm, I'm fortunate to, enough to work with a, a couple of people I'm just going to shout out. So John's one of them from Go Be More, you know, Olympian, kidney disease survivor, father, you know, amazing human being, you know about him from this podcast, and then a lot more people like him. So I'm working with a couple other Olympians as well, uh, Kadivas Robinson, who's a two-time Olympian and 800-meter runner, yep. seven-time national champion, uh, great mentor, father as well, coach at Ohio State. I'll just say... Kadivas came on our podcast as well. So his episode, what, when this airs, he will have aired a few weeks before yours. So, so oh. people hopefully will have heard Kadivas speak a little bit, which yeah. uh, not to interrupt you, but it's all energy, right? Yeah. He's, oh, like, he's, man. He's yeah. amazing. <laughs> and it's rad. He's amazing. Like, yeah. He, you can't sit in a room with him or get on a podcast and listen and not be inspired. I mean, yeah. he's, he's yeah, the yeah, yeah. of motivation. So he's somebody I can bring in with that energy. And I'm really glad you guys did a podcast with him and we'll get to hear it. A couple other people I'll just shout out quickly. Shannon Robury, who's a three-time yep. Olympian, potentially going to make her fourth team in 2021. A mother, amazing human, somebody I went to Duke with as a, a freshman and sophomore. That's and right. I'm working with an MD from Stanford. Her name's Emily Krause. Uh, she works on injury prevention, has her own injury prevention lab uh, at Stanford. Also happens to be a runner, but really an amazing person. And then um, I, I got introduced to this field of people that I don't know how this happened, but I won't go into the whole story, but I started to get introduced just by happenstance and organically to some special operators in the military who reached out to me, specifically Navy SEALs. And uh, mm. one of the guys I'm working with, who's just, I'm getting to know better. John's met him. His name is Holland Romero. He's a 24 year veteran of the U S Navy SEALs, really humble servant leader, father as well, husband, and uh, just an amazing guy. Just, just retired from the SEAL teams last year. And we're doing work together with Maui Method. I've got a couple other cool. uh, military special operators that I'm working with too. And so just all these people are bringing different perspectives. And another last person I'll mention is Elder Jackson, the guy from Inside Circle, who's the executive director. And right. he's a mindfulness expert and just has an amazing story himself, having a life sentence in jail, being released from jail, and now doing mindfulness work and community work to help people in prison, out of prison, and throughout the world. So I am lucky. I feel lucky to be able to be working with this team of just amazing human beings that inspire me and they push my edge to be the best person I can be. And mm -hmm. if I can put them on a platform, just like you guys are doing with Go Be More and I'm doing with Maui Method to bring them to others who can benefit from this, whether it's corporate groups, CEOs, inmates, student athletes, you know, mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers, whoever it might be, we can make the world a little bit better by having conversation yeah. and growing and learning from each other. So that's really in long words what I'm doing now. Well, I love it, Ben. I hope we get a chance to work with you more. Uh, John, I'll let you, I'll let you finish up, but you know, we're going to wrap up this, this episode, but thank you so much, Ben, for coming on 
for sharing your story, especially since so much of it is have been happening so recently, <laughs> you know, and I know you're in a diff- you've been in a difficult place. It's really inspiring what you're doing. And uh, I hope we'll stay in touch and be able to, to follow along with you, how you're progressing with all the work that you're doing, because I, I really love what you're doing. Thank you so much, Brian. I, I really appreciate that. And I, I will follow up with you because, you know, I look at John as a brother and anybody like we talked about, he introduces me to ends up being really incredible as well. And so the little bit I've gotten to know you through this and previous call we had, uh, I really appreciate your time and look forward to staying connected. Yeah, no, Ben, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I think that there's so much that we can get out of hearing somebody to share their stories. And it's not about being perfect in terms of how you say it. Ultimately, it's just it's just about just sharing what you're learning, what you're experiencing, what you've seen, what and also things you just don't know, things that don't make sense that you don't understand. When you can create this sense of relatability or create an opportunity for people to relate, even if it's just in one sentence out of the entire story that you share, it's powerful. You know, that's what we're all looking for is these things that help us to feel validated in what we know and also in what we don't know and what we're uncertain in as well. The thing that I think is most powerful about what you're doing, and I think that the kind of work that we, I think most people today, especially people that truly are embracing the entrepreneurial spirit, because not entrepreneur is a funny thing. I don't know how 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 often the word was used, you know, 50, 60 years ago or a hundred years ago. But I mean, people are entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs forever. I mean, entrepreneur is somebody who's trying to just start a business or create something for themselves to sustain their life. And, but that spirit in the, and that word is powerful because I think very powerful today, because it's about building communities, you know, connecting with yeah. people and using that, using a business or a venture to, bring people together in order to ultimately break down barriers, misconceptions, create opportunities for a wider range of communication on multiple levels, not just in a transactional Mm -hmm. sense and stuff. And so I'll close with that. You know, I think that we're trying to build communities. I think that that should be the work that we're doing because ultimately the reflection of the, the turmoil that we see today caused by things like a pandemic, this, you know, mistrust, or distrust in the media, distrust in leadership, distrust in the government, distrust in in our neighbors, distrust in corporations. You know, it's a lot of that stems from the fact that we stopped at some point building communities. We stopped connecting. We stopped sharing. We stopped being vulnerable with one another, and things became very transactional. Mm-hmm. We're not building businesses like that anymore. I think that a lot of people are seeing through that bullshit to say bluntly and we need more people like you doing what you're doing thank you for sharing the story that you shared about with about your dad it breaks my heart you know obviously to hear how that went down but you're such a strong person and such an anchor for your family and uh, thank you for you know giving us all a little bit of that strength today and sharing your story brother i love you man thanks so much for being a guest on the show we've gotten so much out of this and looking forward to listening back to it Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be a part of this. And uh, I'm going to leave you with one thing, John. I couldn't have said what you said better, and I'm not going to attempt to do that. But there was one more question you had written down, Brian, that I wanted to answer. You asked me <laughs> what's sure. mind when you hear the three words, go be more. And so oh, sure, yeah. was uh, inspiration, action, doing something bigger than ourselves, reaching our highest potential. And something that, that you guys are already doing with this podcast and everything else that Go Be More does with apparel and 
inspiration and motivational speaking, et cetera, it really hits that point home that John was making about building community and reaching our highest potential, not just as individuals, but as, as humans, as, as a community. Um, mm-hmm. And the word specifically to me, go, when I hear that, it's like move, do it, execute, go for it, be, be present, stay grounded and clear. And then more, always reach higher, evolve, give back, do more. And that's where the community piece comes into place for me. And I, I'm just, I'm grateful for you, Brian and John, for the work you're doing, the people you're interviewing on your podcast, the work you're doing in the communities. This is the type of stuff that if more of us are doing this type of work, not only is it helping all of those around us, it's the most fulfilling work I think we can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better, Ben. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate you guys. Aloha, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time. Aloha. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed that conversation and you want to send us feedback directly, my email is brian at govimore.co. If you enjoy the pod, the easiest way to help us is to tell a friend. Whether it's this episode or a past favorite, share it with someone and help them to go be more inspired. At Go Be More, we know that our clothes can reinforce our commitment to be who we aspire to be. So stop by our shop and start wearing your commitment to chase your dreams today. For all of us at Go Be More, we are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too.